Good morning. My name is Chris Ambridge. I'm one of the elders here, and it's my privilege this morning to um, continue the series in Proverbs that we've been doing and to look specifically at what Proverbs has to tell us about money. And you'll see there's a little bit about work as well that I've snuck in. Let's just bow our heads one more time and ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance for us who believe. So Lord, we pray you would renew our minds, and as we think about money, that you would help us to think in ways and to act in ways that give honor and praise to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the news was full of a story about a submarine. Uh, It was heading out to the, the wreck of the Titanic, and it had tragically gone missing. And so for a number of days, a massive search operation was undertaken in the hope of finding it before the oxygen supplies um, that they expected it still had ran out. And then we heard that debris was found near the Titanic wreck, and it was confirmed shortly afterwards that there'd been this catastrophic implosion, and tragically, the five people on board of the sub had, had perished. A place on this expedition came at a lofty price of about a quarter of a million dollars. And so consequently, the passengers were were typically wealthy, including a billionaire and, and his young son. In that moment, as had actually been the case 100 years before on the original Titanic voyage, the size of the passengers' bank balance was of no help or comfort. As I've prepared this sermon, I found a a useful parallel passage was Psalm 49. It's an interesting psalm. It's a kind of proverb-like psalm in a way. It commences with a call to the wise to listen. And then there's this meditation on the limited usefulness and value of money. It rehearses the self-reliance of the wealthy, but then it points to money's inability to help them in the day of death. Listen to uh, a few verses. This is verses 7 to 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Well, before we dive in to the sayings of Proverbs on money, I want us to spend a little bit of time just thinking about this a bit more and kind of spreading a broad context. I want us to think about this idea of ransom that we just read from Psalm 49 and connect it also to some of the New Testament teaching about ransom. We just read, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The issue is that money is not the right currency to ransom our lives from death, is it? So what is the right currency? 
The psalmist, I think at least in part, gives us an answer to the question. Later, in verse 16, he says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So he makes the point that money, what money cannot provide, God can. And we find in the New Testament that he has provided. And if we're to think well about money, we must frame our thinking in this overarching concept of God's provision for us. Well, God's word tells us that actually our situation is even worse than we might think. Many today consider physical death to be simply the end, a kind of full stop at which they cease to exist. Scripture, however, we know tells a different story. We are eternal beings, and we discover that God has a system of counting for each one of us, a moral one. He holds a ledger. And the Bible informs us that we are created by him to live as willing and obedient subjects under his kind and righteous rule. Yet we understand from Scripture that we have all committed treason, preferring to live for ourselves and ignore his claim on our lives. And so we've grievously offended our Creator. We find ourselves as traitors. All of us, whether rich or poor, high or low, are morally bankrupt. And we do not have the currency to get out of our indebtedness. But the gospel is the glorious message that God has paid the price that we are unable to pay. He sent his son to pay our ransom. So this is what Jesus said in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Christ is the only man who has lived who has never sinned. And so he was the only one qualified to be our substitute. Peter puts it this way, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we see that the currency of redemption is not money, it's blood. And it's not just any blood, but it's pure blood, untainted by rebellion and sin. The Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system was built around a concept of substitution. You may remember that an animal is presented to God in the place of the one who needed to be forgiven. And it was to be an unblemished animal. Its blood was presented to God in the temple as a payment for sin. A death had occurred in the place of the one making the offering. And so we read that Christ's sacrifice of himself was the fulfillment of this. This is how Paul put it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So a Christian is someone who recognizes their moral bankruptcy 
their indebtedness, but also recognizes that God has provided in Christ what we cannot provide for ourselves and leans on him, the one who paid their ransom price. Well, if you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, firstly, I'd like to say I'm just really glad that you're here and we hope that you're feeling welcome. I'd like to encourage you to consider this idea of redemption um, a little bit more. Our own efforts, any good works of any kind, are not sufficient to pay the ransom price. And soberingly, Jesus spoke often about hell. He spoke of it as a place of eternal judgment for all who have committed treason against God through ignoring and opposing him as creator and king. But as we've discussed, the gospel is the good news that through Christ, God has paid our ransom, and he wants to receive us, as it says in Psalm 49. But to benefit from this provision, we must renounce or repent of our rebellion and put our trust in Christ to save us. If you're hearing this and and it sounds like it's something that you want to think about more, I'd encourage you to do that and talk to the one, the person you came with or come and talk to me after the service and we'd be, uh, we'd love to talk to you more about it. Well, for those of us here who are trusting in Christ, I want us just to reflect for a moment a little bit more on this concept of riches, the riches that are bestowed upon us in Christ. Listen to to what Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So according to this, if you're in Christ... You have become rich. What do you think about that? I think if you're anything like me, I think that statement can sometimes seem a little bit remote and hard to really kind of engage with and and feel. Um, Well, let me spend a few moments and try and provide a gear to engage our consciences a little bit more on this. I think Paul really helps us in the letter to the Ephesians where he opens by telling them that they have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But then he breaks it down and he kind of gives them a list. He tells them that they were chosen by God before the creation of the world. Just as we've been thinking about, they were redeemed and forgiven through Christ's shed blood. But not only did God open the the spiritual jail cell and let them out, but then they were welcomed into his family as sons and daughters. They were adopted into God's family. And then, beyond that even, as sons and daughters, they they have become heirs with an eternal inheritance. And then God gave them his spirit as a guarantee of this inheritance until they acquire possession of it. So this is the list that he gives them to help them to understand just how rich they have become in Christ. So if you're trusting in Christ this morning, this is 
yours also. And as, as Paul says, these, these are immeasurable riches that every Christian inherits the moment that they repent and believe. Well, I hope that was helpful in, in just helping you to think a little bit more about how rich you are if you are trusting in Christ. But then the other thing that Paul does in his book to Ephesians, the letters to the Ephesians, is that he makes a connection between this hidden status and these hidden riches that they possess and their daily living. He knows it should change things, should change the way that they live. And so he tells them that they need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of your minds because they're darkened in their understanding. And the mechanics of this change was to be a new way of thinking about things. We've just sung about, we've asked the Lord to renew our minds and, and this is what he says needs to happen. They need to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. On the day someone comes to Christ, God doesn't just kind of wipe the He doesn't just kind of wipe the hard drive of our consciousness and kind of download all of his truth into our minds. Rather, it's a process. The Spirit begins a lifelong process of transforming us and transforming the way that we think. As, as, a, as a critical part of that changing process. As we read and we hear God's word, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And coupled with this understanding, the Lord also gives us new desires to please him. We want to do what is pleasing to him. And degree by degree, we put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God. So our words, our tempers, our posture, and the way that we think about money should be constantly changing and ever more closely conforming to the way that the Lord wants us to think and act. So I know that that's been a long preface before we have got to the book of Proverbs, but now that we've set this big, broad context, I want us to turn to the book of Proverbs and I pray that it would transform our thinking and that we would feel motivated to apply what we learned from it this morning. And I want us to consider what the Proverbs has to say about money under three kind of broad topics. Firstly, how should we think about money? Secondly, how should we acquire money? And thirdly, how should we use or spend our money? So firstly, how should we think about money? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that money is not inherently bad. So listen to these two proverbs. This is Lady Wisdom speaking. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. And then the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. So Proverbs generally paints a picture of the potential of wealth to do good. It's certainly not inherently bad, 
but rather it's something that can be used as a useful tool to do good. And generally speaking, Proverbs anticipates that the wise will possess some degree of wealth, the outcome of wise living, and that they, in turn, will use it wisely for good purposes. I want to just briefly pause and um, note that this, some of the sayings of Proverbs have been distorted by the proponents of the prosperity gospel. Proverbs often speaks in ways that can seem quite formulaic. If you do A, then B will result. It's crucial, though, that we interpret the specific parts of Scripture in the context of the whole of it. And I think this is a good thing for us to be thinking about as we look at the book of Proverbs. We just read, the crown of the wise is their wealth. But it would be wrong to conclude that the wise are always wealthy or that the wealthy must have been wise in order to get their wealth. In the New Testament, we see examples where the wise are clearly not wealthy. So, for instance, the Hebrew Christians that were written to had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had better and lasting possessions. So in their case, wise living actually caused them to be persecuted and experience loss. So Proverbs should be understood in the context of its literary genre. These are statements about the normal outcomes that we should expect if we live wisely or unwisely, but they're not formulas. So secondly, in terms of thinking about money, we're to recognize the limitations of money. We've already begun to do that The illusion of wealth is that it can solve all our problems, isn't it? A rich man's wealth is his strong city, 10 verse 15. With the money, we can get many things that might make us feel secure and and in control. So houses, security, ease and comfortable travel experiences, gourmet menus, exotic destinations, amazing experiences, Admiration, friends, the best health care. The list might go on. But as we've already seen, there are many things that money can't get us. You know, there are many lonely, unhappy people living in Beverly Hills. Proverbs alludes to this. 22 verse 1, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. 11 verse 28. Whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So we see that it's the Lord's blessing that causes us to flourish like a green leaf. And at the final judgment, money is of no use at all. 11 verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So money has its limitations. But the other thing that we should think about is that money brings with it many temptations and challenges. Not only is money's capacity to help limited, but it can also lead us astray, often in very subtle, kind of slow ways. C.S. Lewis gives us a taste of this in his Screwtape Letters. The book is an imaginary dialogue between a devil named Screwtape and his nephew. 
listen to Screwtape as he advises his student. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home on earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. I think this captures well how prosperity can have a kind of dulling effect on us. It can subtly, over an extended period of time, kind of knit our hearts to the world. Overwork, I think, can be a symptom of this, fueled by a desire to perpetuate or to improve our material security. Listen to Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. I think also that in subtle ways we can be tempted to project an image of doing well for ourselves. Society has certain kind of materialistic metrics, doesn't it? Perhaps the car we drive or the house we live in, the zip code, or the way that we spend our free time. And if we're not deliberate, we can end up kind of finding ourselves playing the game. Listen, though, to Proverbs 12, verse 9. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whether we can afford it or not, we are not to play the image game. You know, as we've already thought about, our identity is in Christ, not these material benchmarks that society presents to us. And then related to this, we should also recognize that money can distort relationships, can't it? Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. That's 19 verse 4. And then money can create a power dynamic which can lead to arrogance and unkindness. 18 verse 23 says, The poor uses entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. So having money can tempt us to be proud. And we we must remember that humility is the way of the wise that is talked about often in Proverbs. Also, money can tempt us to exploit other image bearers. 22 verse 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And then we're reminded that the wealthy are actually a target for those who steal. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat, 13.8. So this list illustrates some of the, the pitfalls that the wise need to be wary of and guard against in terms of money. Well, the last thing I want to say about how we should think about money is that we are to love God, not our money. In Matthew, we read this one-sentence parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy 
He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Matthew 13, 44. You know, this is one of the shortest parables, yet it communicates such a vital truth. I, I just love it. I always find it so helpful. So we're presented with this man with his metal detector, and he unearths a treasure beyond his wildest dreams. And so having made the find, the only logical action is to go and sell everything that he has, go buy the field so that at the same time the treasure will become his. And though the field costs him all that he has, it's just still a no-brainer, isn't it? The treasure is worth immeasurably more than anything he had to relinquish. Listen to Proverbs saying something similar. This is 3, verses 13 to 15. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Or 8, verse 19. This is wisdom speaking. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. My yield than choice silver. And 16.6, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Paul puts it this way in, in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In the plain light of reality, Christ is surpassingly more precious than even the greatest hoard of earthly wealth, such that anything we might give up is comparatively insignificant. Just remember how joyful the man was as he sold everything he had in the midst because he knew that he was getting something immeasurably better. I think if we're honest, though, even though we want to love Christ and want him above all things, we know that our hearts often tempt us to love our money. And Jesus knew that this would be the case. And so he warns us about this as a pitfall. He says, Matthew six twenty four: no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We see that God will not share our love and devotion. That scripture warns us to this extent should tell us something. If we're not vigilant and careful, love for money will possess us. It can capture our hearts and cause us to wander away from the faith. And so therefore we must be ever watchful. And we must be willing to take strong action. And to use the words of um, Romans, we must be ready to kill this rival love that draws our affections away from Christ. And I would add that since this self-deception is a risk for us all, we need to help one another in this. I think there's, there's a general... I mean, we all know that there's a general social taboo that we don't talk about our money. But I think in many ways, this can kind of extend into the life of the church as well. 
How would you feel if a brother or sister asked you directly regarding decisions related to your money? Well, I would encourage you to make up your mind to welcome and to invite these kinds of questions. You know, we need all the help we can get. I'm speaking to myself as well. Remember that if you attempted to love your money more than Christ, it's not because he is less valuable. Rather, it's an issue of perception. We can help each other with this. I encourage you also to perhaps spend time this holiday week meditating on the wealth that is yours in Christ, that he is our greatest treasure. So, in terms of thinking about money, we've seen that money is not inherently bad. It can be used for much good. It's an integral part of everyday life. And there's potential for us to, for us to use it wisely for good things. We must, however, recognize its limitations and that it will tempt us in a variety of ways. And we must also take seriously Jesus' warnings that God will not share our affections with money and that we must be constantly vigilant about this. So with this being said, having thought a bit about how to think about money, I want us to now consider how to both acquire and to spend money. So how should we acquire money? Point number two. Generally, through working. Proverbs generally assumes that wealth is gained through the consistent practice of diligent, honest, skillful, hard work. Let's kind of break that down. So, diligence. It presents to us a number of times the image of the hardworking, diligent farmer who plows, who plants, and harvests with forward planning and self-discipline. So 28 verse 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, and he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Verse 10 verse 5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And then by contrast, Proverbs goes to great lengths to warn us about the pitfalls of laziness and sloth. So listen to these Proverbs. 10 verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 12 verse 27, whoever is slothful will not roast game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. These types of warnings against slothfulness seem to be a priority for the writer. Take it easy is is not a kind of parting comment on his lips, it seems. He knows that our flesh is generally disposed to lead us away from effort and difficulty and lead us towards ease and, and kind of the path of least resistance. Such is his concern about this as he, he doubles down and he teaches us further on this topic by introducing us to a character who is called the sluggard. You may have come across him before as you've read Proverbs. He appears quite frequently in the book, actually 14 times, which is a lot. Um, let, me, let me read you 24 verses 30 to 34. I passed by the field of the sluggard by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, 
It was overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. As I was reading through this this morning, my mind actually turned to our front yard and the the crumbling stone wall and the moss growing in the middle of the grass. Um, Fortunately, I think the writer is actually getting at a deeper issue than the potentially unkempt state of my front yard. He's describing someone who is more generally lacking in discipline and seemingly unable to apply himself to work. So, you know, this lazy fellow is characterized, characterized by a number of traits. He seems to live in the moment. He's unable to see the future implications of his actions. 20 verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. His appetites rule his life. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. 13.4. He's a man who's well acquainted with his snooze button. He loves to sleep and get rest. 26 verse 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so, the, so does the sluggard on his bed. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? 6 verse 9. And then he makes silly excuses to avoid having to work. 26 verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. And he thinks of himself surprisingly highly, given all that we've just talked about, and prefers to talk about his plans rather than do work. 26 verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. 14.23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So what are we to learn from this character? I think he presents us with a warning about the dangers of taking it easy. He was a man who took the path of immediate self-gratification more than being prepared to wait and to work for something. So when your impulse is, I'll take care of it later, examine your motives. Is it to avoid hard work or perhaps pushing through a difficult task? And notice again that the way that someone works tends to be closely tied to their ability to provide for themselves and, and to, to be prosperous. Generally, laziness leads to poverty and want, and we see that hard work leads to self-sufficiency and wealth. Well, the next thing that I'd like to see about work is, is skillfulness. Proverbs has categories, interestingly, for skillfulness and resourcefulness in the midst of earning money. 22 verse 29, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. 31 verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. 24 verse 27. Prepare your work outside. 
Get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. So as we work, the, the way we work also matters. Beyond being diligent, it seems that these Proverbs encourage us to aspire to do the best work that we're capable of doing. Strategize, prioritize, organize, using the mind that God's given you to its fullest capacity to maximize the quality and the efficiency of your work. I know that the Lord is pleased when we do that. And if we do this, we will probably find that we do better, that perhaps we, if we work for ourselves, we're more efficient, we get more done, we earn more. And that could result in the opportunity to then have more time to do other things apart from work. Well, the other thing that we see about work is that Proverbs talks about the importance of honest work. So hard work, skillful work, and, and then honest work. It has a lot to say about this. And the Lord's concern for righteousness and justice in the midst of acquiring wealth. 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 11.18, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. And I think a number of specific means of unjust gain are also mentioned specifically here in Proverbs. 21 verse 6, we, we see lying. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Theft. 22 verse 22 and 3. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate, or the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. And thirdly, deception. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. 11 verse 1. Proverbs warns against this a lot, um, this kind of idea of deception. In a trading context, the practice of deceiving someone by kind of meddling with the calibration device or measuring tool. But by contrast, the Lord is delighted by a just weight. Well, I imagine that we're probably not tempted to kind of file down our half-pound weights to improve trading prospects. But these these principles apply to any form of measurement related to money and business. This idea of being completely honest. So do you accurately report your hours if you have to fill out a time card? If you can't remember, I find I sometimes am in that situation where I can't quite remember it fully. In those cases, under-report. Be self-evidently fair, honest, generous in keeping records. Don't lie. Don't steal from your employer even a little bit. Even if no one else knows, remember that the Lord does and as a just, a just weight is his delight. Well, 
Proverbs also talks a tremendous amount about oppressing the poor. Um, Injustice tends to impact the poor most significantly since they are the most vulnerable. You know, the poor have less options to just walk away from a less-than-fair arrangement. A paycheck-to-paycheck situation tends to put a lot of power in the hands of an employer. The Lord is concerned about any form of exploitation of the poor, and we, we read that he would defend them. And we'll see in a minute that one of the purposes of our wealth is actually not to exploit the poor, but to be generous to them. So let us give thought to our consumption habits to consider how we can support businesses that treat their employers, their employees, fairly and justly. In doing this, we will likely have to pay more for products and perhaps be content with having less. You know, perhaps consider looking for fair trade products. You know, that's just a simple way that we can encourage honesty and fairness towards those who are most vulnerable. So we've seen that the wise generally acquire money through working, that we're to be diligent, we're to be honest, that we are to use the gifts that God has given us to work in the best way that we can. Well, I think while work is the, the, the meat of this section, if you like, and how we acquire money, there's a couple of other things that we do need to talk about. Firstly, the, um, the reality that many of us will inherit money, and Proverbs actually talks a little bit about that. It doesn't say much, but it does say something. And this is, of course, a legitimate way that people acquire money. Actually, Proverbs does talk about the act of leaving an inheritance to one's children as being the mark of the wise. So 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. I think the main lesson of Proverbs for the recipients of an inheritance are warnings about a kind of naive presumption that it's this kind of bottomless resource, resulting in potential squander and laziness. So 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. I don't know about you, but sometimes on Saturday mornings, I, I get this kind of sense that I have just loads and loads of time in front of me. So I can relax and I can kind of take things slowly and I'll kind of get to my list of tasks kind of later on in the day. And then sometime in the afternoon, I I kind of realize that, oh, the the day is kind of almost gone, and this kind of mild panic sets in as I begin to kind of look at that list of things that I should have done and realize that it's going to be a challenge to actually do them all. And I think it's the same concept that, you know, if, if you're the recipient of a large amount of money, it's important to recognize that the danger of it just dwindling through a naive presumption that it's always going to be there. So plan carefully, use it wisely within the the broader context that we're about to see of loving God and neighbor. Well, the other other topic that we do need to talk about in terms of acquiring money is borrowing and debt. For many, taking out a loan is a familiar means to acquiring money. 
you know, we live in an economy that in many ways functions on the basis of credit. And it's considered normal for Americans to live with an array of debts, student debt, a mortgage, car loans, home equity loans, perhaps even credit card loans. Until, until recently, credit has been quite cheap, hasn't it? And servicing a loan has cost us little. And so I suspect that many have given not that much thought to the wisdom of taking it on. But as we've seen and we've previously considered, it's important that we submit ourselves to the Lord's word and use it to evaluate and, where necessary, transform our thinking. So let's just think about this topic of borrowing for a few minutes. This is what Proverbs says in 22.7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. While this is the only direct instruction regarding borrowing, I think this concept is reinforced through much of the teaching of the book of, of Proverbs. It's also relevant to note that lending for profit, which is the opposite side of borrowing, is denounced. So 28.8 says, Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. Well, I recognize that this is a really complicated topic and that for some of you this may be especially sensitive because you may have significant debt. And so my goal is not in any way to crush anyone, but rather to present the wisdom of God's word to help us heed warnings and to make wise choices. So a few things. I've got a number of bullet points about borrowing and debt. It's firstly, it's not categorically sinful to borrow money. There are times when borrowing money may, after careful consideration, be the best option. Secondly, the need to borrow could be the result of sinful choices. A situation of genuine need may be the result of past greed or slothfulness, perhaps overspending or overly optimistic expectations about the future. And these may lead to a state of need. Thirdly, the act of borrowing could in itself be sinful. This would be the case if the borrowing is fueled by desires for what we want. So rather than wait and save, borrowing might be a means to get what we want right away. Next, borrowing establishes a power dynamic, and we, we see this in the proverb. Proverb focuses on the way that the borrower becomes subservient to a lender. In borrowing, an obligation is established that is likened to being a slave. And while we may benefit from consumer protections that may not be in view in the book of Proverbs, the chain still nevertheless exists. If we owe money, we are not entirely free. A portion of our earnings is always spoken for. And this obligation is especially applicable to a Christian since the promise to repay has been made and must be kept. You know, we have given our bond, and therefore we are in a kind of debt bondage. Next, debt, not all debt is the same. Secure debt 
is backed by a fixed asset that could be sold to repay the loan. So, for instance, a house. Unsecured debt is where the funds purchase something that couldn't be sold at a future time in order to repay the loan. So, for instance, student loans would be an example of that. Secured debt is inherently less risky and easier to get out of. Though it's worth considering perhaps the implications of losing that thing that was purchased, um, but perhaps not having a car, and also evaluating the extent to which the purchase price could be recuperated afterwards. Next, there's no such thing as good debt and bad debt. Just because one form of borrowing is for a more worthy purpose, which may be the case, it doesn't make it in itself good. I've heard people in the past talk about student debt as good debt. And I think the effect of this tends to sanitize it and perhaps make people people overlook the realities of the obligation. Yes, it may be an acceptable option, but don't lose sight of the implications of borrowing a large sum of money. We will have to pay it back, and it could significantly narrow options in the future. Psalm 37.21 says this, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. This really just underlines the necessity of a Christian paying back debts as a moral obligation, a commitment that they've made. It's a moral obligation before God to keep their word. And so consequently, personal bankruptcy should not be an option for a Christian. Next, I'll note that borrowing can involve sinful presumptions. Borrowing can involve sinful presumptions. We must not make the arrogant assumption that that tomorrow will be the same or better than today. James talks about this in chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town. Spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, or such boasting is evil. I read, I read this so that we can recognize that taking out debt is borrowing against a future that is inherently uncertain. James reminds us that we are a mist. And we would therefore be wise to limit our future obligations. I'll just mention this. Um, Proverbs also talks about the foolishness of providing guarantees for the debts of others. Um, That's 22, verse 26 and 7. This is actually repeated numerous times. We shouldn't take on financial responsibility for someone else who may make unwise choices. So, Just to conclude what I've been saying here, I know that this has been quite a lot. Um, Borrowing is not something that we should do lightly. Any decision whether to take on debt should be thought about carefully in the light of Scripture. Pray about it. Seek godly 
advice. As elders, we, we welcome you talking to us about big financial purchases that you're considering that may have long-term impacts on your life. These are important things. And then secondly, if you do have debts, do what you can to repay them as soon as possible. I know that debts are often paid back over long periods of time. Given all that we've seen, however, especially noting the obligation of a Christian to repay what they owe, it is advisable to pay down a loan to the extent possible with a sense of urgency in order to be free of the obligation. And if you're someone who has large unsecured debts, perhaps student loans that cause you to feel burdened, if you haven't done so, I'd encourage you to talk to others in the church. Seek counsel about ways to manage your obligations and develop a strategy for getting out of debt. And also perhaps consider how you might be able to help others who are on the other end of these kind of decisions to think about them carefully. So some questions to think about if you're about if you're considering actively considering taking out a loan is it something for what I need is it something that I need or is it a, a way to avoid getting some is it a way to avoid waiting for something that I want could I acquire this without taking out debt perhaps finding a more affordable option or saving and waiting Is it something I could get out of if I needed to? What would happen if my circumstances changed? Perhaps a job loss or sickness or interest rates go up, house prices fall, etc. And then evaluate the question of how this might limit future options. Avoid taking on debt obligations now that narrow your options in big life decisions in the future related to perhaps children, work, vocational ministry of some kind. So how are we to acquire money? We've seen that Proverbs seems to generally assume that wealth is gained through the consistent practice of diligent, honest, skillful, hard work. Borrowing is something that we should only engage in with much thought, prayer, and counsel. Well, that brings us to our last topic, How should we spend our money? We saw earlier that God intends us to think of our money as something to be stewarded for his purposes. Broadly speaking, in answering the question, how should I spend my money, the answer is that we should use it to keep the two great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. Listen to Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. 22.9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. I think by contrast, the world typically sees money very differently. It's viewed as a means of self-reliance, and in many ways it's viewed as a way to indulge ourselves. Wisdom then reorients our perspective on money and wealth away from self and towards God. So what does this look like specifically? Well, firstly, we are to provide for ourselves 
and any dependence that we have. The principle here is that to the extent that we're able, we must provide for ourselves such that we are not dependent on the church and others. We actually see this idea running through many of the Proverbs that we've just reviewed related to work, but we also see it in the rest of the Bible and in the New Testament. So 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And note that I'm saying to the extent that we're able, I recognize that some are unable to provide themselves. And in those cases, the church community should be helping to meet immediate and important needs. Well, I'd like to just break this down into categories of present needs and future needs. So I think that's a a kind of a helpful way to think about how we can provide for ourselves and provide for our families. I think the present needs are pretty obvious. You know, the need for food and shelter, clothing, healthcare, etc. But what about for future needs? Our expenses in the future need to be prepared for. And I think these are the needs that we might anticipate um, and also the unforeseen needs. And for this category, we are to save. The way of wisdom teaches us not to spend all of our earnings right away, but rather to accumulate reserves for future use through saving. Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food food at harvest. 13.11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. So when we save... An element of self-control is required to forego the immediate spending opportunities for the sake of future benefit. The fool's appetites cause him to devour what he has right away. The lure of immediate gratification results in an empty wallet for him. But by contrast, the wise, as we read, gather little by little. This discipline over time results then in precious treasure and oil in their houses. Well, while some do only barely earn enough to cover immediate expenses, I suspect that for most of us, we have some capacity to save a portion of our income, even even if it's not that much. And savings might be specific or they might be general, probably both. So it's common to save for retirement or a children's college Um, expenses ahead of time and the tax system is set up to encourage that to be done it's less common to save for a car for instance I would encourage you to consider buying your next car without credit I know that there's some folks here who do that for others it might seem like a kind of a slightly strange concept because you've never considered it Consider, though, the benefits of not having a car payment. The process of 
saving itself will probably influence what you buy because you won't be thinking in terms of a monthly cost but evaluating the the value of the entire purchase. And then general savings are a wise cushion to enable us to provide for ourselves when we encounter unexpected expenses. We've already noted that life is uncertain. So whether it's being laid off from a job or needing to provide a new roof on your house, you know, it's prudent to store up reserves for those inevitable unforeseen needs that will arise. I was told that over 50% of Americans have no savings. So, you know, basically they would be in immediate default if they lost their jobs. In the context of savings, we need to also make an important distinction between savings and hoarding. Um, Hoarding might be distinguished from savings as a self-sufficient and greedy accumulation of wealth that has the effect of diminishing one's sense of need to rely on the Lord as provider of all good things. So we're not going to read it, but the parable of the rich fool would be a great place to think about this from. Hoarding is motivated by the prospect of future ease, plenty, and self-indulgence. There's a line where prudent saving crosses this kind of threshold and becomes hoarding. It opts to keep money that we ought to be giving um, that we ought to be giving to the poor. Proverbs 28:25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be rich. Well, that actually brings us to the topic of generosity. This is one that Proverbs has a lot to say about in terms of the way we use our money. So, what does Proverbs tell us about generosity? 19 verse 7. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 11.24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer, while another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 21, 25, and 6. The righteous gives and does not hold back. We started by thinking about the generosity of God in Christ to us in the gospel. Christ gave generously at great personal cost in order to meet our need. And so we as his people must also be generous. It follows from that, that we are to reflect generosity because that's what God is like. In Ephesians, um, Paul actually talks to someone who's been stealing, and he says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I think you know, we might quite naturally think, think about a connection between the need to work in order to provide for ourselves. It's interesting that Paul is saying to a thief, you need to work so that you can be generous. When thinking about giving, let's consider for a moment who we should be giving to. Proverbs does focus overwhelmingly on generosity to the poor. And we see a concern for that in in Scripture more generally beyond the Proverbs as well. 
So we should have a category of giving to all who um, are poor in a broad and general sense. And there are many ways for us to do that, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. Beyond this, the extended passage in um, 2 Corinthians that we've read bits of specifically focuses on giving to meet the needs of fellow Christians. Um, and, and Paul talks about this as the ministry of the saints in chapter 9, verse 1. Christians in one place giving to meet the needs of believers elsewhere, especially those who are in need because of persecution. An example of a way that we can do this kind of today is, is giving to Christian charities who are specifically seeking to help those believers in other parts of the world or even in this country who are suffering because of persecution or natural disasters, but this, this ministry of the saints. Um, you know, we, we support a charity that I think is a UK-based charity called Barnabas Aid, um, which does a great job of this. Well, thirdly, also, though, giving needs to be focused locally um, towards the, the support of a local church ministry. And we read about this in the book of Galatians where um, chapter 6, verse 6, it says, one who is taught in the word must share all things with the one who teaches. And then uh, 1 Timothy 5, the laborer deserves his wages. Local church ministry costs a lot of money, and especially in a city as expensive as D.C. The elders don't know who gives specifically to Restoration Church or how much. Uh, we do review the numbers more generally, and it encourages me to, to know that many of you are just really generous and faithful in your giving. I think it's the, the, the church investment strategy is, is evidence of that and the way that we often even give beyond what we expect. Your faithful giving enables us to support two, two full-time pastors and, and also other staff members. And if you're one of those many who prioritize giving to the Lord's work here generously, be encouraged by this evidence of God's grace in your life. I would also note as well, though, that the numbers reveal that there are some who give very little or even nothing. Um, and if that is describing you, I would say consider carefully all that we've been seeing in Proverbs this morning. Ask yourself why Am I not giving very much or at all? And there may be some legitimate reasons for that. If you don't have a paid income, then don't borrow in order to give. Um, but for those with an income, even a very small income, Scripture teaches us to be generous and to give as we are able in proportion to it. My parents taught me to give 10% of my allowance when I was growing up, which was a very small amount of money. And I'm grateful for that because it established a habit. And so even if you earn very little, give a proportion of it back to the Lord and see that as an opportunity to trust him to provide for you for everything you need. Selena Hastings, who was also known as the Countess of Huntington, was a wealthy aristocrat in 18th century England 
who supported gospel ministry extensively. It was estimated that she gave the equivalent of 25 million in today's dollars to a broad variety of gospel initiatives during her lifetime. And she was considered to have played a prominent part in the 18th century revival. And someone said of her, she devoted herself, her means, her time, her thoughts, and her money to the cause of Christ. She did not spend her money on herself. I know that few of us will have this same capacity to give, but I use her as an example of someone who saw her financial resources as an opportunity to serve the Lord. So I encourage you, strategize ways to generously give, to meet the immediate physical needs of neighbors and those further afield, but also to fund the work of the gospel, both here at Restoration Church and beyond. I imagine that at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, what about discretionary spending? I don't strictly need a new TV or to go on vacation. Is, Is that unwise or even sinful? Well, I think in response to that, I'd say, well, I think we need some kind of plan of how to spend our money with thoughtfulness and appropriate restraint. And I think a budget is a useful tool in this context. It's a tool that helps us to strategically use our resources in a way that keeps the important things in view. It also brings a level of freedom to us to be able to enjoy good things, perhaps some of the things I just mentioned, but without neglecting the really important things. As we make our budget, we should recognize that our flesh will always cause us to want more. If your impulse is for bigger, better, right away, ask yourself, why? What are my motives? Am I being self-indulgent? And the world will tell us that we deserve and we should aspire to more and more and more. But the Lord reminds us that life and contentment is found somewhere else, not in the accumulation of possessions. So Proverbs fifteen seventeen says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Consider where real satisfaction is found, not in acquiring more, but in the context of meaningful relationships. It's better to have a simple meal with people we love and are loved by than a steak dinner without those things. So now in conclusion, we've considered a lot of things from the book of Proverbs this morning related to how we should be handling our money. And I want us to just finish by kind of, in a sense, going back to where we started. As God's people, we are called out of the world to live a new spirit-led life. We're told we're not to conform to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. From the moment we trust in Christ until the day we die, the Spirit is at work in us transforming us, transforming our thoughts and our attitudes. 
through our habits. I want to finish this morning by asking you, do you desire that? Do you see the opportunity to honor the Lord with whatever resources he's given you? Do you see how the Lord might use what you have and the way you use it to make his light shine? Perhaps through diligent, honest, and skillful hard work. Are you motivated by the prospect of being able to be generous and in that being a blessing to those in need and being part of the work of God's kingdom being taken to the ends of the earth? I will finish with Paul's words from 1 Timothy 6. He's he's here actually addressing the rich specifically. However, the principles, I think, are relevant for all of us. So listen to this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen.